for just about everything for the outdoors, go to MidwayUSA.com. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why Midway USA offers super fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Happy Tuesday, everybody. Today is August 16th, 2022, and today's guest is Kevin Leach from Latitude Outdoors. All right, welcome to the Fall Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Blasey, and today is episode 231. And as you guys are listening to this, I have been back from New Mexico. The trip got cut a little short just due to being successful on day one. Pretty awesome trip. I can't wait to kind of let everybody know about that trip. Uh, It's coming soon. Um, We're going to be talking about that here in the near future, just maybe as a bonus episode, but a really cool trip. And all in all, it was a good experience. So, but I'm back and uh, excited to get some more podcasts out to you guys. So today is with Kevin Leach of Latitude Outdoors. And uh, Kevin is kind of, you know, one part of the three-headed monster of Latitude Tree Saddles. So I've got to know Kevin, Jake, and, and Alex over the last, I don't know, a couple months. I, I met Alex last year and um, you know, obviously we're partnered together now, but today I want to talk, I didn't really want to talk about saddles. I want to talk about Kevin's just ability to hunt swamps and public land swamps and cattail marshes and stuff like that. He's been successful on hunts like that. And, uh, today is, is no, no exception. He's, um, today's podcast is a good one. He talks about a success story he had last year on limited time because he had a new baby coming and uh, he killed this this nice Michigan buck in a public land cattail swamp. So it's really cool. Um, he's got some really good tidbits in here on access and, and being uh, covert, if you will, and uh, his hunting style. Like it's really neat. So I'm glad I was to get on here and and uh, pick his brain because honestly, I I just know I you know I know them as the latitude guys. But really, when you peel back a little bit of the onion, these guys are really good hunters. Not you know not that I didn't know that before, I guess. But like when you start talking to them and the things that they say and and the success they're having, it's pretty cool to put the pieces together. These guys are really good deer hunters. So that's going to be today's podcast. Um, I do want to get into a couple partner reads here. First, uh, Exodus, the Velvet Fest sale is still going on. 
Um, I'll keep it short and sweet and the full uh, and full of savings. I just got word that uh, they're kicking off the annual Velvet Fest, which we knew has been going on. I mean, these deer are going to be getting hard horn soon. They're going to be finishing out. So, you know, take advantage of these savings right now and uh, get yourself some trail cams. So, but I'm going to explain a little bit to you about what it is all about. If you're not familiar with Velvet Fest, hashtag Velvet Fest, it's the official start to deer season and Exodus helps by getting the ball rolling. I know, you know, around when Velvet Fest starts, that's when I need to get my cameras out, which I've got them out. Um, there's a couple more I need to get out, but I got the majority of them out and uh, they are running like crazy. It's getting kind of late here, everybody. But from now until August 19th, so you got a couple days, they'll have awesome prizes for people who use the hashtag VelvetFest on social media showing their whitetail adventures. Every single camera order comes with a random prize card. I've been told it includes some huge deals. To help share all with all the excitement for the upcoming season, we're offering 18% off site-wide, excluding their new MMT arrows. Prize cards are included with every single camera and arrow order. Just scratch the card and find your winnings. Use the code, now here it is, use the code SUMMERBUCKS at checkout and save 18% and exclusive to podcast listeners. They'll extend this offer to the end of the month, so don't overlook this unique savings, opportunity, and experience. True dependability when it comes to cell cams. If you're new to Exodus, let me share you this. Over the last seven years, Exodus has consistently shown they build quality gear that flat out works. And of course, the best trail camera, camera warranty, period. Five years. Every single camera is backed by a five-year warranty and even comes with theft and damage coverage. Yes, five years, literally half a decade, you'll be covered by the Exodus five-year warranty. But more than likely, you won't need it because I've said it a couple of times and I'm going to stand behind it. They're built like brick shit houses. So be sure to part, take part in the hashtag VeltFest celebration. Be sure to tag your social channels because we'll want to see what you guys are up to this summer. Don't forget to use that hashtag VeltFest to get submitted. <sighs> there it is. That is the Exodus one. I want to get into a little bit Helix Broadheads here. Uh, this past weekend, my dad came over, has never shot a Helix Broadhead ever out of his bow or nothing. Um, I have not tinkered with this bow at all as you know since last year and he brought it over put 100 grain helix head on there 20 yards first two arrows thump, thump, right in the middle basically i mean i'm talking maybe an inch low um and i made one micro adjust followed that arrow and boom boom they were right in the middle uh they're flying like darts no kicking no nothing like that and then we moved out to 30 and he doesn't shoot any more than 30 so he shot those as well and he is dialed i mean literally that's how simple it is i mean get your helix broadheads now if you guys want a code for helix i got it right here it is fall hx10 to save some money go pick up your helix broadheads now that is Helix Broadheads, and go check them out at helixbroadheads.com. Next is Latitude Outdoors, latitudeoutdoors.com. I literally am looking at it right now. As I'm recording this, I just received my X-Wing platform, and with that, I'm going to start playing with it like crazy, but I am going to be doing a video here, an unboxing video, um, talking about this X-Wing, my first initial reactions to it and everything. I've been on it a little bit up at TAC. I spent, you know, a couple hours maybe on it. Uh, Greg Litzinger and I did and just kind of got used to it, but I'm really going to do a review next and, you know, in the fall 
really just giving my overview on this thing, but I really think this thing is going to be awesome. If you guys want to get into anything saddle hunting, you know, light, efficient, mobile hunting setup, go check out Latitude at latitudeoutdoors.com. Last, certainly not least, is Vector Arrows. Guys, I'm not going to lie to you. You have to, like once these things come back in stock, which is usually about every Friday, you have to get your order in because I don't know if they're going to be able to get them out to you soon enough if you wait any longer before season. Um, I just got my last dozen basically for my hunting arrows, my HMR twos, my, the first uh, version two I got, and uh, I've been shooting them like crazy, and I I've got nothing to nothing bad to say at all about them. They're flying awesome. I can go hunt tonight. Really, that's that's where I'm at. But yeah, with that being said, oh, I forgot one thing. Forgot. I'm going to have a big announcement coming here soon, um, maybe next week's podcast, or I might just do my own podcast on it and just have, it could be this Friday. I don't know. We'll find out, but um, I'm just going to leave it there. I got some big news coming, hopefully, and uh, I should know within the next day or two, and it might uh, it might need its own podcast to talk about it, so I'm pretty excited about it. Um, it's been about three years in the making, and uh, I'm really jacked, so Look out for that as well. Also, go to my YouTube channel, The Fall Podcast, and watch the videos. Subscribe to it. Tell a friend. Uh, you know, Go check out the videos. Hopefully, you guys like everything. So with that being said, let's get to this interview with Kevin. And uh, yeah, here's this interview with Kevin. All right, welcome back to another episode of The Fall Podcast. And today, I've got Kevin Leach from Latitude Outdoors on. And... Like Alex, I had him on not too long ago. We are not going to be talking about latitude today. We, it might be in passing, but today we are diving into the swamp hunting, which is uh, something that I'm trying to dive into a little more this year, and I'm getting frustrated with it. And Kevin is a good swamp hunter, and he's a good hunter in general, and I cannot wait to pick his brain. So, Kevin, thank you very much for coming on, man. Yeah, hey, Aaron. Thanks for having me on again. It's a pleasure. Yeah, for sure, man. And uh, this might be a breath of fresh air to not have to talk about saddles for once. <laughs> or maybe. <laughs> yeah, I'm not gonna lie. It absolutely is. Uh, you know, I, I, I um, so fun fact about me: my wife and I had our first child last November. So my my fall last year was literally a two week season. Luckily, I was able to to have some success, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But I'm amped up and ready to go uh, for this fall because I didn't get to hunt very much last year. So Man. I'm excited to talk hunting. Yeah, you're probably chomping at the bit. So uh, I guess I want to get it a little bit. Let's start off like where, you know, I knew I know you were really involved with sports growing up and then into college and everything like that. And it kind of took precedent over hunting. So like when did you actually really start diving into hunting whitetails and really getting into it? It was later, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I grew up around it. My dad's been, you know, bow hunting public land in Michigan for over 50 years, you know, since he was eight, nine years old. Um, he used to take me out scouting in the spring, or if he shot a deer, he'd take me out tracking. He tried to take me out a couple times as well, um, but for whatever reason, when I was younger, I took more to fishing. Um, I'm also a really big, passionate fisherman, and when I was younger, I just gravitated in that direction a bit more. Um, and I was an athlete growing up, which sucks up a huge amount of time. Um, I was a pretty successful athlete, so I was also very passionate about that. And 
uh, football in particular, which eats up a lot of time during <laughs> hunting season when you're younger. Uh, so there just wasn't as many opportunities um, to do that. And the little bit of time I did have to go out and enjoy an outdoor hobby, I, it was just kind of easier to go fishing because there wasn't any prep work um, like there is with hunting. And we didn't have access to, you know, private land right out the back door or anything like that. You know, we're typically driving a little ways to get to some public. Um, so it was just more difficult growing up with, with the athletic background to, to access hunting. And um, so I really didn't dive into it hard and circle back on it uh, until right after college. Um, you know, when I started to have a bit more time in my schedule and got a couple of years of work under my belt, finances were better. Yep. And, um, you know, I started to kind of explore public land on my own. Um, picked up a, a, an old tree stand for my dad, brought that out, out into the woods. And uh, I'm sure we'll get into this more to more detail, but that first I'd say that first fall where I truly was out there on my own, I only hunted from a tree stand seven times before I, I switched over to the saddle stuff. Um, but even with the tree stands, I've been a mobile hunter from day one and really never hunted private land maybe once here in the state of Michigan. So, You know, you bring up, uh, you bring up the time aspect, and that's something that's like a barrier for everybody, I feel like. And I feel like a lot of people don't talk sure. about it too much. Is in same with me. Like a lot of people ask me before is like, why, why don't, why haven't you d dove into public hunting? And I'm like, well, you know, it was never a necessity for me growing up. I've always had private land. I was privileged to have private land, but like now I get into like, you're a dad now and you know, you have a family. Yep. I'm the same way. And it's like, man, it, you know, I can go out behind my house and have a two hour sit. And if I go to public, it's a, 30 minute drive one may way, then it's a two hour sit and it, it turns into a three hour ordeal or more. And it's like, you know, that extra hour of travel can be like, you know, crucial to your family life. So, oh, I, you yeah, know, absolutely. I mean, and, and then add on top of that, living in a, a relatively good sized city. So I live in Grand Rapids, Michigan, uh, second biggest city here in Michigan. And it, um, I don't hunt within an hour of town. Right. Um, just in order to get away from, from people, that's just one of the things I've learned doing the public thing here in Michigan is, you know, try to stay at least an hour outside of the bigger cities and that's going to help cut back on the, the amount of people. So if you're an hour each way, plus, you know, maybe an hour, um, access route into wherever it is you're going to set up, you know, that's, that's four total travel hours just for one sit. So, yeah. um, you know, that, that is a lot of time. Well, and it, it also, yeah, and it also goes to the, you know, putting cameras out in the, in the summer or in the spring and then scouting. It's like, it all adds up and it's like, man, how do you really, I mean, how do you manage that time for you? How do you manage that time now that you're a, you know, a new, new parent and like really trying to get out as much as you can? I mean, I know last year was your first fall of having a child, but like, how do you plan on going into this fall? Like really managing your time the best way you can. Yeah, I, I think it's a it's a brand new variable that really impacts kind of all the season preparation and then the execution throughout the season as well. Um, and, and certainly got a small taste of it last year. But I think even the last handful of years, I've, I've kind of um, tried to find ways to be more efficient just because it is there is so much travel involved to get to my locations where I've had the most success. Um, 
you know, and I think a big part of that in the season preparation is just uh, how I'm collecting data on different areas that um, are going to give me opportunities at the class of, of animal I'm looking for. So I'm typically, you know, I'm, I enjoy shooting any and everything, but I'm first and foremost going to target a mature, a mature buck if, if possible in a given area. And um, one of the big things is with trail cameras, I, I don't run regular cameras anymore at all. I'm 100% saddle cameras, and I think a lot of guys have gone that direction. But one trip to go change cards or check cards, um, you know, really in gas now, especially oh, this yeah, year, dude. is basically the price of a of an entry level cell camera, right? So um, I've started to I, I've switched over completely to doing just just cell cams, um, and I run a combination of kind of entry level budget cameras that are around that 100 to $120 price point, and then some more expensive, um, more reliable models yeah. as well. Um, and uh, it kind of, depending on where I'm placing them and my, my plan for that particular camera, I'll choose one or the other. So, yeah. Um, but I play a lot of, I play a lot of chess preseason kind of trying to figure out um, where I can give myself the best opportunity that first three days of season in Michigan and then ultimately kind of that back half of October into the first part of November. So, um, but I, I really think the cell camera thing has, has helped combat the lack of time. Um, that's been a, that's been a critical tool for sure. Yeah. I, I'm going to echo that as well. Like I know cell cams are kind of getting a bad rap from a lot of people, which I, I totally understand their side of it. Um, okay. you know, but, time and you know to kind of culminate or compile with the time is like i hunt a lot of like little woodlots and fence rows and stuff like that i'm talking one acre two acres three acres where if you keep going in there and in there like you're pushing deer and deer and deer and pushing and pushing and pushing and it's like you know how do i maximize my time with you know, maximizing my sightings and possibly success with like not going in there. So that's where I feel like cell cams really, you know, flourish. And, you know, I'm, I'm not the type of guy that's going to find a deer on cell cam right now and, and like try to sneak in the back door and kill him. Like that's where I draw the line. Like that's, that's not ethical to me. So, um, I definitely get that side of it, but it's like to, to try to be more efficient with your time and you know, the time you get to hunt or to do something it's, you know, it's cell cams, I think is a huge, huge way of doing that. And like you said, you're driving at least an hour one way from your house, like cell cams and no brainer for you, you know? Um, yeah. And with gas, like you said, yeah, gas I, alone I, is just stupid. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, th I, I think it, I, I totally agree what kind of gets lost in that trail camera debate oftentimes is just kind of access to the sport. I mean, um, sure. I, I, I agree that it, it does help. I think kind of be more successful on average, but, um, you know, if you're, if you're not close to huntable ground, cause you don't have the means to own private, um, you know, I, I don't see anything wrong with, with, you know, giving someone the ability to give themselves a, a little bit better chance of success or more just more efficiency in where to go and when to go um if it is such you know a long a long drive just to go hunting um they might only have three saturdays in the fall where they can go yeah or when they can go so 
Um, I don't see anything wrong with that personally, but that's just my opinion. Yep. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's so. let's dive a little bit into here, and you know, I, I reached out to you and, and asked you kind of some things that you know that I might not know about you and your hunting style, and the things that you came yeah. back with were like exactly kind of in a long or in, in in short form, like exactly kind of what I wanted to talk about, and it and selfishly, it's because it's what I'm going through right now, and you have more. More, way more experience in it than I do. So um, the swamp focus, hunting swamps, is like where I want to be with it today. And and um, I want to start off about uh, access and entry routes. Like, you know, you, mm-hmm. you talk about being creative with access and entry. Like, w- it, you know, from a 30,000-foot view, what does that look like to you? To me, um, I think 30,000-foot view... Um, you know, if, if I'm going to access a stand or a stand location, um, if, if something doesn't feel odd while I'm doing it, then it's probably something that the deer in the area have seen before. Um, okay. That, that to me is really, really a good indicator. Um, I try to, on a lot of my access routes, do something that I feel like no one else would ever do. Um, sometimes it means walking extra sometimes it means walking less sometimes it means actually parking down the road and then walking up and going up the same route as everybody else but there's no vehicle there um so i i try to i try to basically i'll I'll pull up onyx or whatever map you want to use and and map out my entry for that location obviously i'm accounting for wind and where you know, the beds I think are located morning, evening, there's all those other variables as well. But if I draw that path, that route, I kind of sit and think to myself, is that's, is that a, a route that someone has walked or traveled before? Um, I think that's a really good way in high pressured areas to approach access routes after you kind of account for the basic variables with wind and, um, making sure, you know, you aren't going to cross your entry trail, that kind of thing. But just doing something different, especially, um, I'd say the first part, um, once you leave the vehicle, a lot of times, uh, can make a big difference. Um, I like that. that I like, yeah, it does. I like, I've never heard you or heard anybody say if, if it doesn't feel weird to you, then it's probably (laughs) the right spot is that's what you're saying, right? Like if it's like that, Mm -hmm. that's, that's a good point because, um, as you're talking about it, I'm trying to like rack my brain in some, some areas that I've been scouting. And like, I got one that's like off a of two track, you know, uh, just off of a parking lot. And you literally walk down this groom trail and, you know, you dive off a little ways and you find some sign and it's like, Oh, you know, this looks like a good spot. And it's like, yeah, but you and a hundred other people have found that. So like that feels sure. right because that's what a lot of hunters have done their whole life. So what's different? I love that. That was a great answer. I'd really do like that. Yeah. And I think it, it becomes even more critical if you're, um, you know, we've all heard about her Dan and I'll talk about, you know, uh, big mature bucks that kind of find goofy locations, um, to grow big. And a lot of times, not all the time, but there's, there's oftentimes those are near parking lots, um, where they can monitor, uh, who, you know, when people show up. And I think, creative access to those locations is probably it might be the most important factor to to success for targeting one that's living in a location like that i mean a a great example um of a a swamp that i hunt there 
Oh, there's there's a a little corner of this this parcel that's kind of surrounded by private land off to the side, relatively close to a parking lot. But up by this parking lot, which is near Main Road, it's all crop fields on the public. It's it's DNR sponsored or or funded um, mm-hmm. plantings, and everyone you know that's probably just about ever hunted that location just pulls up to the parking lot and walks through the fields and uh, there's literally a small little bedding area right off to the side and those deer are directly downwind of that entry route and directly downwind of the parking lot about half the time with the prevailing winds and a way that i will access that and hunt that little bedding area is there's actually Three miles down the road and around the corner, there is a bike path that cuts through the middle of this public swamp that I will access from about three miles away and park at the end of that bike path where it crosses the road, and I'll bike in down the pass with my gear on my back, and it's about a one-mile bike ride, and then I'll hike back up towards the parking lot (laughs) to get to this little bedding area. And, you know, it's about... It's not an, a difficult access by any means. I mean, you're on a bike most of the time, and then you're actually on dry ground the rest of the time. But it's just, it's just goofy. Um, so by doing that, I'm never upwind of the deer. They can't see me coming in this big open field if they're not planted in corn. And who else has ever done that? If you think about it, but who else would park three miles away, come down a bike path through the center of a swamp, and then walk back towards the parking lot? Yep. Um, so that's one, I guess, just an example of one location that I that I like to hunt that um, that has worked well for. Yeah. Have you found um, any success around a parking lot? Now, I'm not saying necessarily killing a deer, but maybe mm-hmm. encounters of good bucks or anything like that. Like, have you found success, or do you really try to kind of get away from parking lots as much as you can? Uh, I have had actually the last couple of falls. It's funny you ask that. Last fall during my two week season, my last hunt of the year, which ended up being October 18th, um, the buck I killed um, was a 10 point, 300 yards off the road, in kind of a wide open, more of a marshy section of this swamp. Where if you if you stand up, if a, a buck stands up, they can literally see two parking lots okay. along that road, and it's. Um, so that's one example. And then two falls ago, the other one was, again, within 300 yards of a road, not as not as adjacent to a parking lot per se, but, you know, that's a creative access location as well, where I actually park and then walk a half mile down the road, and then I just go 300 yards off of it, um, as opposed to, um, well, as opposed to kind of going all the way through the timber and, and you're upwind of the deer most of the time. So, yep. um, but the one last year, I think is a, I mean, it's a great example of, it, it seems to me like oftentimes the, the box that set up near access, we've heard other guys talk about the visual. Um, there's a specific scenario that I've seen repeat several times and that's not only the visual, but they will set up directly downwind of the parking lot if there is, you know, good good security cover to bed in um, for the prevailing wind. And it seems like oftentimes around here, that's a southwest wind. Uh, so something that is, you know, northeast of a parking lot. And what makes that scenario even better 
is if the primary food source is also upwind of the deer, preferably upwind of that parking lot. Okay. A little bit. So, um, so that, that was the exact scenario for the, the buck last fall. The primary food source is actually on the other side of the road. It's again, planted public. So beans in the summer, corn all fall. Uh, there's some wheat mixed in on some of the back or further back fields. And this, this buck was set up 300 yards off the road, uh, across the road from the primary food source, and the parking lot was between him and that food. Okay. And in all these swamps, there's, br- there's browse for these things, especially in the summer and early season. There's browse where they can, they can eat all, they can snack all day long. There's so many different plants and whatnot out there. Um, you know, guys talk about how they feed X amount of times, what is it, five times in a 24-hour period or whatever. So there's got to be some food nearby. There's, there's kind of just food everywhere in swamps, and that's one of the things that makes it difficult to hunt them. But, um, you know, this particular deer last year, I had him on camera coming out of this little piece right near the road in the summer. He was actually living with, um, there's another big eight point that he was bachelored up with all summer and then he kind of disappeared off camera early season and um i had a heck of a a time last year we had we had nothing but rain and warm weather those first two weeks of october last year i don't know if you remember that yep we had it up Um, so yeah and having only two weeks you're kind of forced to do the best you can with what you're given yep and so it felt like i was wet for 15 days in a row (laughs) I, i don't know about I don't know about you, but I was never dry for two weeks. Yeah. Um, and we finally, I was actually supposed to be done on the 15th of October. That was the agreement I had with my wife. <laughs> and we had the first perfect cold front, you know, come come through. And in this area of the state, um, the bucks will fire up, you know, about a week or so earlier than, than further south. And she said, you know what? This baby's not coming tomorrow. Just go one more time. And that God was the morning of getting this book. <laughs> I know, isn't she's great. I I've got nothing but good things to say about her when it comes to <laughs> dealing with my hunting addiction. But um so anyway, so I went one last time. I didn't really have any good um recent intel because things just hadn't been moving very much. There was a lot of hunting pressure last fall, like there's been the last couple um in this area. And really the only data I had for anything decent was this consistent trail camera data right at the end of the summer in this location, coupled with some spring scouting from about three years prior, um, there was a rub line in this little piece that, that if you took this camera back into this bedding area in this wide open marshy patch with just a few big trees back there, you know, this rub line, which was the, the only mature buck rubs in this whole area, there's kind of rubs everywhere because there is quite a few deer but the biggest ones followed a very distinct line back to this spot. And I had never hunted it actually. And, um, so I, I, uh, I actually parked downwind of the spot along the road and then Jay hooked in into the marsh. And I just picked one of the like three trees in this whole area and was the one closest to that, that trail. And, um, he came down the trail like clockwork um, Jeff says we hit shooting light and it was probably five minutes after shooting light. I, I had a chance to get an arrow on him. That's and, awesome. Um, so what, it, what was, it was the, just, go ahead. 
No, go ahead, Aaron. What was the, uh, you got me interested. What was the, the trail cam Intel telling you at that point? Because, you know, I, I know this was your last day to hunt, but like, let's kind of even throw that out of the equation. Like, let's say you have all season to hunt. Like what was telling you to go there, like on this trail cam? Cause you did say that he left the area in early October, early season. So like, mm-hmm. what was like, okay, this is where I have to go. Like what was telling you to, to be mm-hmm. there? On, on camera well i had the the rub line data from the spring scouting from years prior in that in that little spot um that was consistent multiple springs in a row and he had been working that trail in the late summer i wasn't getting him on camera first part of season that i think sometimes I don't know if he left or not. You know, you yep. just don't know. Yep. Um, but there are a lot of does in this area, and I think, you know, these bucks in this spot, they're set up downwind of the parking lot area, and they've got the visual so they can monitor, you know, human pressure. But they are also downwind of a great little doe bedding area, and the, those does are there year-round. Okay. Um, so... I'd say the other data point there is, you know, it was, it was kind of that first October cold front and they're starting to sniff around and relocate just downwind of bedding, um, and wait for that first hot dough. And in this particular area, it's not uncommon to have one fire up by October 20th. So, um, that was working in my favor as well. I gotcha. So when you explained that you J hooked, you were, you, you parked downwind of the tree and then you J hooked in, mm-hmm. explain that a little bit more. How did you, you know, how did you J hook in and, and why did you? So it was a Southwest wind morning. Um, if I would have parked in the, the normal parking lot, um, this buck would have walked right past my vehicle. <laughs> oh really? Okay. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, they literally crossed the road about 10 yards from the parking lot, um, clip onto some private, and then they hook back into the, and come down that trail I referenced, onto the public, and then just sit and watch. Um, so it was kind of two things. I, I parked down the road so you wouldn't see my vehicle, any of the deer, because it's not just the box. The, those are doing this, too, in this area. Um, but, you know, the vehicle's also downwind. Walk up the road a little bit. And it would have been, I came off the road and I walked straight north and then make a hook up that trail that he's going to come down to one of these trees. So I'm hooking to the west off of a straight north and, um, you know, with a southwest wind in my face, kind of quartering. Okay. So and this trail. Where where do you think right the buck? Yeah, where do you think the buck was from that location? Then, like, where did he, like what direction did he come from? So I had uh, trees with beds I had marked in the spring scouting, both just north of me and just south of me. Okay, this trail actually comes right right to the base of the tree I picked, and then it it kind of bananas left or right. And I'm not 100 percent sure if if you know, wind makes a difference or if it's all Southwest, whether they go left or right, it would really, for them to J-hook into their beds, it would really work either way. Um, so they might be turning left on a certain wind, turning right on the other. I'm not sure. All I know is I was able to kind of set up at the point where they make that decision. So it didn't really matter. Yeah. Um, you know, I just was going to be downwind of him the entire time he's coming down the main trail before he does his J-hook. 
So I'm really setting up where he makes the turn. Okay. Okay. I'm, I think I'm starting to get a picture here. So, so you're thinking, cause mm-hmm. the wind is out of the Southwest, correct? Yeah. And he's coming down the trail headed pretty much due East. Okay. Um, and okay. I'm set up, so I'm set up East of him and he's coming down that trail and then he's going to make a left and J hook kind of North and, and curl back, you know, into the Southwest wind or, make a right and go south and curl up into that southwest wind there were beds in either direction and having not hunted this spot previously and not run a camera you know right at the location um i just set up so that you know i could kind of account for both yep and that makes total sense now um did he do exactly what you thought he was going to do j hooking and was he going to bed before you actually got an arrow in him did you think that or was that what he was doing well, he was probably going to do that, but what exactly happened was I, I mentioned the does do this as well, and they'll just come off on, on their own trails. And there was a group of two or three I ever, never actually visually saw. Um, it, all these deer came in in the dark right before shooting. I, I could hear a solo deer coming down the main trail right to script, moving real slow like they do. You know, they're kind of poking along yep. and, and being real careful. But then I could hear, I heard a group of does come across the road behind me, back where I had Jay hooked in. There was, I guess, a trail over there that I had crossed over, which is a no-no, but sometimes you just have to do it. Right. Um, and so there was a group of does that actually came in probably, I had to guess, 40 yards, 50 yards downwind of me in the dark. And they just stopped as soon as I what I'm assuming is they hit my, my entry trail um, oh, or gotcha. my wind. I'm not hundred percent sure. And I could, I could hear them kind of like trying to figure out what was going on. They were rustling around. They were getting a little concerned and he was still working his way down the trail and it was, it was gray light. And <laughs> I was basically just praying that these does would not spook him, you know, start blowing and spook him before I got to, to shooting light. And sure enough, probably two minutes before shooting light, I can see him coming in and he's probably, I don't know, 45 yards out, just working his way nice and slow. And these does start screaming. I mean, they started blowing (laughs) nonstop and they did, but they, and they didn't run. They just stood there and blew and blew and blew because they couldn't figure out where the danger was. Yep. Um, Even though I'm up in a, six to eight inch diameter tree big blob up in the air it, it wasn't you know it was just getting light enough to see and he stopped and stood at 40 yards and was just staring at him and i'm downwind of him i'm up out of his line of sight even though i don't have a lot of cover and he's just his eyes are totally pegged on these does and he can't smell me and then he starts to look around he's scanning around what are these things freaking out about where is the danger um, or are they just does being does? They're doing something dumb. And, you know, cause he, he was trying to figure it out. He was smelling, looking around. Um, initially he decided that, that, you know, I can't locate it myself. So I'm okay. He kept working in real, but he was even more cautious. And that kind of went, went on for probably a good 15 minutes. There, the does went through like two rounds of blowing at me before they finally took off. Mm-hmm. Um, but he worked into like, well, I ranged it after I took the shot at 
27 yards. So he probably worked into about 25 and was just standing there staring at him. And while he was doing that, I grabbed my bow and swung around the tree just real slow. And those does finally took off. I heard him run. And when they did that, he slowly took a, a step backwards. That was the first step he had retreated down the trail. And when he did that, I, I took the moment to draw because he wasn't paying attention. He kind of turned around, took two steps, and he was quartering away perfectly in a little gap in the cattails. And, you know, I just estimated the range and, and let her fly. And I hit him high. And um, I think I, yeah, I hit him high and a little forward. And he kind of walked off slow, almost looking like I gut shot him. And he was leaving so slow, I actually knocked another arrow, ranged the next gap in the cattails at like 62 yards and launched a second arrow when he hit that gap, not knowing if I hit him or not. Right. And he, he, he kept walking and he bedded up like 110 yards away. And I watched him there bed, get up, rebed, And he did that for like the next three hours before he kind of walked into some brush and disappeared. And, and actually I found out after the fact, he probably expired right then and there, but, wow. um, it was a, I sat in the tree and, you know, that was right at shooting light, which is probably, I don't know, 8.15 in the morning at that point. And uh, I think the last time I saw him before he disappeared was like 10.45. Oh, wow. I got, I got down around 11.30 and then let him sit until I think we went in around six o'clock that evening to recover him. And he was stiff as a board. So he probably died, you know, around 11. Yep. Um, so it was a, it was a circus there right at first light. <laughs> <laughs> what? Uh, so where did you end up? Did you take one long, like the top one long, or how'd that work? So I actually hit him with the second shot. Oh, you um, did? In the neck. Okay. Yeah. So I think I, I'm not 100% sure which one ultimately killed him, if it was just a combination, because nothing knocked him out quickly. Um, I did hit him in the liver. Um and it was it was really weird. I honestly don't even trying to think back. We were trying to figure it out when we recovered on which which hole was which. But I think I hit him high, and that's what it was. It was high and back on the first shot. Came down, hit liver. Second shot was neck, which okay. bled out blood pretty good. I got gotcha. you. And and um, yeah, I got the job done. Not not the prettiest, not in the prettiest fashion, but. No, hey, that's we recovered that's, them so. yeah, exactly, and that like that's crazy to me. Like, you know, and, and like I told you, I haven't done a lot of swamp hunting, you know, so stuff like that like fascinates me. Like getting in early, you know, walking through the cattails or whatever, and and you know, getting in their bedroom like that. You know, Greg Litzinger, we both know Greg. He's he's a he's a bed hunter and he's good at it. You know, and it's like that is like elite level status stuff right there. You know, when you can get into a bedding area in the morning and watch that deer come back in and capitalize, like that's, that's some elite stuff. I like, I'm so fascinated by that stuff. Boat Trader, America's largest boating marketplace, offering easy financing and over 100,000 boat listings to choose from. Sell, find, and finance new or used boats on America's largest boating marketplace. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations 
and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I, it's, I, I don't consider myself a lead at it, personally. It's <laughs> really, really hard to do. I mean, it, it's, uh, I have tried, I've tried it a lot. I'm, I don't know, I'm real, a relatively stubborn person, I think. And I, I probably hunt too many mornings in early October, but... I've had a lot of instances where I'm very close to getting them on their J hook or, um, you know, or I, I go in and they just barely beat me in or something. And so you can, it is risky. It's very risky. You can blow a deer right out of an area, but, um, I've become more and more addicted to trying to get that to work. Yeah. It's just the competitive nature in me, I guess. But, um, cause it's true. It's a true cat and mouse chess game. Um, and I, I don't know. There's something about going in in the dark when they're not there yet, and and executing a perfect entry that allows them to come back, not knowing you're there, and they think they're coming back in, you know, uh, in a protected fashion. I guess um, they think they have you, and you're already there waiting for them. I that one that just gets me going for sure. So now I I want to add a little bit onto that is like how how early are you getting in the tree like how when you're setting up i mean how long until we're waiting for it to get gray light and then crack day uh i am set up in the tree like an hour and a half before daybreak okay so i'm getting in pretty early um most of the time unless something happens and i'm late but <laughs> that's what i shoot for yep I is, gotcha. uh, and, and that's set up in the tree so um you know, that's getting to the base of the tree an hour and 45 minutes before uh, daylight. Yep. Yeah. And so when, when you're walking, you're, you're getting there pretty early. For sure. And when you're walking in like that was, I mean, I know you're probably trying to be quiet as all get out, but like you're going out into a cattail marsh, right? So like that, it doesn't sound like it can be quiet. Honestly, when you're getting in that early, I don't think being super quiet is as critical. Uh, it, it obviously is situational dependent. Um, I think uh, I'm not a big fan of real bright head headlamps. I know that's like a John Eberhardt thing. And I, I believe in that wholeheartedly. Um, this, like the, this particular deer we just talked about was in an open marsh area and you can see a headlamp in the dark forever. I mean, from a mile away. And, um, I would never want to recommend something that's not safe for people, but I, I like using a very dim light. I actually use a red light myself. I take a, I don't, wouldn't necessarily suggest that, but I, I take a headlamp that I can switch back and forth from a white and a red and I run the red and I actually hold it in my hand down by my waist and I just yep. shine where my feet are going. Yep. I do the same um, thing. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that is more important than trying to be quiet in the dark because they're not back yet. You just It's more important to just get to the tree and get off the ground quickly. Because um, once you're off the ground, you're quiet. I yep. mean, as long as you know what you're doing with your gear and your setup and you've, you've done that um, in the dark and practice it. Um, for me, it's all about getting to the tree and getting off the ground as quick as possible and then just taking my time, making sure I'm... I'm organized up in the tree because you, you've got a lot of time to wait. So, yeah, 
for sure. You got me thinking now. I've got a spot that's real tight to some bedding. It's actually on private, but um, and it's like right in between destination food and the bedding. I actually prepped this tree mm-hmm. yesterday, uh, and I like now I'm trying to figure out a way to get in there in the in the morning, like early, and just catch them going back because I was setting it up for an evening spot coming from bed to food, but I really think I could probably get in in the morning. It, it'd be like really early in the morning. It'd have to be. And sure. um, I'd be walking a long way, like <laughs> a long, <laughs> long way. <laughs> but it goes back how, how to what you were saying the, how, about being weird, though, with the entry. Like this would sure, be sure. a very weird entry. Right. Well, what? How far is that, that particular bedding area from the food source? It is probably from if you're talking about from closest, you know, edge to closest edge, you're probably talking 150 to 175 yards. Okay. And I'm set up in the that middle. That might be tough. I might wait for a Yeah, I might there's I would do one of two things there. The other thing I kind of breezed over with the buck from last fall that um I didn't mention with the cold the cold front um you know, they tend to just come back just a hair later. Okay. Um, yep. They, they tend to, they tend to not come back later early season. Um, sometimes that first day, that opener morning, um, you can get them coming back a little later. Um, but it seems like after the first morning, that's, that's gone. That opportunity has, has passed. So what might work or something to think about for you and I would only try it once so you don't blow things out since it's a private piece, is um, set, actually setting up a little bit further downwind of his bed. That's something that I've started to do. Rather than trying to catch him on his J-hook, if you know he's going to beat you back because of the time of year, or he doesn't even have to beat you back. He just has to beat shooting light back. Right. If you know he's going to get back in the dark, if you set up, like a hundred yards or 75 yards, just whatever it is, kind of usually that 50 to 75 or that like 60 to 75, 80 is a sweet spot for me, but it would depend on the terrain. You actually set up downwind of his bed about that distance and allow him to J hook in and never catch you. When the lights come on, he's eventually going to stand up and do some browsing. Yeah. And I mean, most of the time on public, when they do that, they're not moving more than 20 yards. But, you know, if you might get lucky and he might move just enough to be within shooting range and he never knew you were there. Yeah, um, that's uh, that's what's running through my head right now. Do I get closer to his bed, you know, like you just said, and farther from the food essentially? But what I think I have it narrowed down to is – you know, obviously coming off some food sources, you know, this is a transition spot and it's basically in between two ridges and it's a bench and they're using this bench and I've got a mock scrape there and they're hitting it like crazy. Like right now as they're, and you can tell every morning they're coming back to bed right now. And every night I've got a cell cam in there every night they're going out to food. You know, that's just, it's the pattern. So like, I'm not right over that scrape. I'm probably 80 yards from that scrape, but the scrape is close to their bedding. And that's why I'm not hunting right over it is because it's, it's real tight. Um, and the, they're betting on the neighbors. So they're not betting on me. I have oh, the, I have the okay. food. They have the bed. 
if if that makes sense. Ah, uh, okay. So I'd probably be a bit more cautious then if you can't set up downwind of his bed. Yeah, and but the thing is, is I've got it narrowed down, and you can tell if I if I walked you out there, you could tell just by the trail. I mean, take the trail cam out of it, but just by the trail they're on this trail. Like it's looks like Cam Haynes sure, runs down sure. this thing every morning and night. You know <laughs> what I mean? So it's like, yeah, if I can pick where I feel like he's got the, he's got the wind to his advantage, but I'm just off. Like, I feel like I could kill him, but dude, it's so, like you said, it's so difficult to do that in the morning. So hard. Um, I mean, he's, he's, if it's not, if it's on the way to his bed, he's probably going to, go through there in the dark if it's early season yeah um it's probably more of a mid to late october first cold front coming back just a hair late scenario it, that's probably how i would approach it but um i've not seen the property so that there might be an opportunity there it's hard to say well yeah in that that buffer zone in between the destination food and his bed so the bedding area is a big cedar swamp and like with hemlocks and everything and where I'm setting up is like oak ridges and in the saddle, this bench makes, you know, there's oaks in there all throughout. And, um, that would be like the transition. He's going through a whole bunch of oaks to get to his, to his hemlock swamp, his cedar swamp basically. So, um, yeah, I just think it'd be very touchy and evenings, not an issue at all. Like I can get in tight in the evenings. I've done it before been successful in there before but i'm just trying to figure out a way to maximize and possibly catch one in the morning but it might be too too iffy it yeah i mean it, the yeah that first week that's what i started to do more is just like i described setting up off the bed downwind kind of just out of bow range and just hoping that he comes in settles down lights come on typically around nine o'clock, just like they do in the rut where they go out and cruise, they'll stand up and browse. Um, and, uh, you know, I mentioned there's, there's all these swamps just have a million food sources. One that I have started to key in on more in early season bedding is autumn olive in my particular area. Just, just like you see in hill country, um, in certain sections in like Southern Ohio, I'm seeing the same thing, but in low level swamps, here in, in central Michigan and northern Michigan, um, and uh, they tend to gravitate gravitate to those areas early season because they can just stand up and feed on the autumn olive and not have to move. That's funny you say that because right next to where I've got this tree prepped, the buffer there's a buffer zone from the food to where the scrape is, and it's all mm-hmm. autumn olive that's inside all these oaks like there's so much lower vegetation and to go back to the spring not this spring but last spring found a couple sheds in there you know in the in the later season so and that's something i'm kind of trying to key on as well and i've actually had some success in the snow late season with a bow in this area so i'm almost thinking like it's gonna be like that later october time frame and then you know, obviously through the rut, I think that's going to be a good rut funnel. And then, but late season, I'm not overlooking late season either with the food. Sure. Sure. Yeah. The, the other, the other thing I've really started to look at more the last couple of seasons through camera data, and this is more on cameras that I'll dunk in deep in, well, usually by now I haven't done it yet this year. So I guess I'm going to have to wait for a rainstorm day, but, um, just kind of more using historical data um, in these bedding areas 
uh, the early season ones with the autumn olive is this particular swamp that I'd say my favorite swamp there. I don't really do much for what I would call scrape hunting because it's so wet and um, the deer have to kind of position themselves so far from dry land to remain safe in daylight hours that your traditional paw the ground scrapes uh, hunting those is a very rare occurrence for me but they will still use licking branches in the same way um, over these wet areas and they will oftentimes pick out that autumn olive i think you know the the does are feeding on it too and so if you find um you know just a high doe traffic area I've caught bucks those first two weeks of October checking these licking branches on autumn olive bushes on those high, you know, highly traveled um, trails right in bedding. Okay. And um, so they kind of serve a dual purpose. They're a food source. I think the does are nipping at them, but they're starting to, you know, leave scent trails that they're getting interested in. So they're just, they're using them to start to monitor these things as early as those first two weeks of October. Um because, I mean, as soon as the buck is hard horn, he's ready to go. He's just yeah. waiting. Yep. So um, he can kind of two, kill two birds with one stone in that scenario. And um, it's really hard to find those, though. Like, I, I've gotten lucky the last couple of years with cameras. And that's kind of how I've seen that is just pure luck. Because, I, I mean, you can identify a licking branch. But to just go out and find a licking branch without having a scrape underneath it. Yeah. And to have it just be on a bush is difficult. Yeah. And especially in the spring, which is when I do most of my scouting in these bedding areas. So um, those take a while to find. But if you find one, they're a good little trick in early season. At least it's something I'm starting to key on more personally. Yeah, I can definitely see that. And like this swamp, I'm the, I've got a swamp on the same private piece that I can hunt, but it's so thick. And my biggest issue with it is like, it's it's wet ground, but it's full of deadfalls and you know, there's like no open areas until you get like in the middle of it and there might be like one or two trees that you could even sit in. So like I mm-hmm. wanna hunt it, but you sound like a bull in a china shop coming through it. I mean, you got water that is up to your knees or waist high in every area. You can you can kind of jump from one knoll to the other knoll but on top of that it's like just deadfalls everywhere and i'm like man i just Mm -hmm. so i'm trying to hunt the edges of it and just really trying to pinpoint where they're coming in and out and what's what's good about that is like what i've found is there's not sign on the edge of it everywhere like i only found you know like two different spots that are like real good sign as far as like rub line or a really good run going in and out like you can you can pinpoint those spots pretty good because there's not a ton of sign like you know like the sign that they're just laying down just in passing like to me that really doesn't mean much it's the mm-hmm. like beacons like there's only a few there so you can really narrow it down have you seen that as well trying to hunt like edges of swamps The, in terms of the the buck sign, yeah, like the, the sign, like trying to decipher the sign and where to to set up. Maybe if you can't get in the swamp. Honestly, I I'm rarely on the edge. Okay. Um, in Michigan, um, it might just be the areas that I'm spending most of my time, but typically I'm actually in there. Um, okay. 
And I, I totally, you know, see where you're coming from with the, the difficulty to get in there quietly. And, and maybe that's why I've over time become more and more interested in, in, um, this morning strategy because you don't have to worry about that as much, um, in these areas because it is very difficult to do. It's very difficult to get that close. It can be done, but you better give yourself a lot of time to get in there. Um, as far as the sign on the edges, I think it's, I do, I do look at that. Like if I'm going to a new area, especially, um, for like spring scouting or speed scouting right before season, whatever you want to call it, I do think it's a good way to just get a sense for the amount of deer in the area. If there's, you know, a good buck population, cause there's going to be tend to be a bit more buck sign just in general, but I don't know, man, the bigger ones do, at least where I'm hunting, do not seem to leave much sign at all for one. And, um, it's, I I don't find it on the edges a lot. Um, and I know that's a bit different from what the infaults say and that, that kind of thing. I, my theory on it is that I think the bigger deer that you find on public are actually spending a lot of time on private right next to it. Okay. Yep. Um, and they're just, they're kind of, they're coming on to the public at select times for certain reasons. Um, and that reason is different based on the scenario, but they might pop over late October, early November, first part of the rut, just check on a, a group of does that's on the public 24-7. Um, you know, there might be a couple of oak trees that fire up, you know, just on the public a little bit. Um I don't know. It, it it seems like a lot of my better spots are like in the corners of, of public properties where I'm actually hunting pretty close to private um, in a respectful manner, of course. Yes. Yep. Um, but you know, I, I, those deer are moving back and forth between the two a lot. I think once they get, you know, the ones that make it to a an older age class. Yep. Um, it's pretty rare. It seems like that one spends a hundred percent of his time on a public piece. Well, I think and, that's just the reality of it. Yeah, and I've got a question that kind of compiles this whole thing. I know we got about ten minutes here or twenty minutes, and I want to. This will be the last question I ask you because I know you got a hard stop. But um, y- how you talk about your pinpointing close or you know closer to private, um, but you also talked like through some of the texts that you and I have had to like how you covertly hunt around other people on pressured public. So mm-hmm. you know. I feel like a lot of public hunters probably try to tend to stay towards private in a way. Um, that's like the initial thought that I get. So like, how do you intertwine trying to stay away from other hunters, but still do your thing and, you know, in situations that you know will work and have worked for you in the past? So I think, so it's a combination of, of a few things that when you're talking about hunting private public edges specifically, um, a lot of times back corners of properties are good. Um, uh, sections of public that are landlocked on, a, on let's say two, two sides and, and the only way to access it through the public to get in there is through something that requires like a canoe or hit or waders or, um, something that makes access significantly more difficult and then the backside of it is landlocked by the the property line 
Um, that's a good scenario to get away from people. Um, some of them are just overlooked spots. Again, back to that, and I know that's kind of a buzzword nowadays, but it might be, you know, I've got one that based off historical uh, rut camera data the last two years, I'm going to finally start hunting this year. It's And it's like 40, 50 yards off of a bike path. Um, right, you know, probably 75 yards in from the property line. And it seems like everyone hunts, you know, kind of in the, in the main section of the public, um, or they, they go in deep and then, and try to get to one of the back corners. But in this particular little off to the side area, there's, there's a, a trail that bucks are just, they're cruising back and forth between the two properties, um, you know, every first week in November, the last two years. So, I don't know. Every, every scenario is a little bit different. Um, when it comes to, uh, I guess when I say covertly kind of hunting an area, not letting people know where you're, you know, kind of targeting and spending your time. <laughs> what the main trick that I have there, and I guess I'm going to give it away if you see my vehicle out there, but <laughs> here we go. Um, the, uh, I, I never, I never, it's very rare but nine, probably 95% of the time, I never park in the parking lot closest to where I'm going to be hunting. Yeah. Um, so you got a lot of pedal bike time probably. <laughs> I, well, it could be a bike. It could just be, I'm going to huff it a little longer. I, you know, I'll, that's part of doing something goofy with your access, right? I think mm-hmm. that's all kind of intertwined. You're, you're kind of killing two birds with one stone. You're, in terms of outsmarting the deer and outsmarting the people. Um, so I might park on the parking lot down the road a little bit and actually on the other side of the road and cross the road and go into the public. Um, a lot of people don't, don't cross roads. It doesn't seem like, um, they park on the same side of the road that they're going to be hunting. Um, so that, that's probably my number one trick. I don't know if that's a, if that's, you know, much of a secret if there's probably other guys doing that, but, I just, I don't know. I, it feels goofy to me. And so I, I think it, you know, it kind of, I've had, I've ca- had situations where I've come out of the woods from a hunt, walking down the road, get to my vehicle and there's someone there parked next to me and they look at me and they're like, where did you come from? You know? <laughs> and because they just walked out the normal way and there was no one else. And then I kind of show up coming from a totally weird direction for that parking lot. And yeah, I, I think that reaction kind of, um, validates that that maybe helps <laughs> so. you know and it could be a, a like you know you and in, in the mindset you have i i bet if you see another guy it could be a real mind screwy deal <laughs> where you're like okay where's yeah. this guy is he right here or is he yeah three miles away you know yeah well so that that's probably my number one trick I, one that i a tool i started to use more and more the last like three years especially Everyone talks about canoe kayak access and that kind of thing. Um, I've actually now have a a folding kayak. I don't know if you've ever seen those. What? Yeah. I don't know if I've it, ever heard of a folding kayak. It folds up like like a piece of origami paper into like a little box, and it's got backpack straps, and I can just put it on my back. And what that allows me to do when it comes to creative access is I can actually ride a bike or hike to a Creek location and, and then get in the Creek. 
as opposed to having to drag a canoe or a kayak from the vehicle down to the water, your vehicle is always next to the water in that scenario. Um, you know, there's areas of swamps where you can't get your vehicle close to the spot that would be the most ideal to, to, to start paddling from. Um, so that's been a tool that I started to use a bit more and it, it really opened some things up. Uh, and it's, it's again, one of those goofy things where if, I, I'm trying to think if someone's run into me using that thing. <laughs> and they're just I, laughing maybe, at you or something. I think, I don't know if it was a hunter, but I've come out on like, uh, one, again, another bike trail spot that I'll take the bike trail in and pop down into this Creek. That isn't that it's only like eight inches deep, but it's got no, no bottom. You just sink 10 feet into the mud type of Creek. And, um, that's one of those getting back into one of those spots that the backside is landlocked by private. And the only way to get to it from public is to go across this Creek and up this Creek. But, uh, you can't, you can only get to that Creek either on foot or with a bike. You can't, you know, there's no, there's no parking lot that gets you to that Creek. Huh. Um, so, you know, I can ride, ride in on a bike with this folding kayak on my back, holding my bow and my, my pack on my front of my bike and put it together real quick. It, it sets up in a couple of minutes and, you know, quietly paddle up, up the Creek and get to where I need to get to with minimal scent trail and. Uh, the private land guys that think they got a, a corner on that part of the state game area, you know, they're kind of like, what the hell's going on? <laughs> they right. catch you back there, but yep. it's, um, that's an interesting tool. It's, they're not, the thing only weighs 20 pounds. So it's, it's another little, I guess, trick that I'm starting to implement more. I like that. That's good. I, I really like that. Well, I know yeah. we're getting up on time here. Um, I knew I told you we weren't going to talk about latitude, but is there any uh, cats you can let out of the bag for uh, what's coming down the pipeline for latitude at all? Oh, man. Let's see. Um, I know we talked about the sticks on the last show. We were planning on having those out, you know, by the time of this recording here in, um, I guess it's early mid-August. Um, they are right around the corner. We are still very excited about those. That's that's probably the biggest thing on the horizon for uh, the remainder of this fall. Um, from a product standpoint and then um, we've added some guys to the team so you're going to start seeing some a bunch more content from us through our youtube channel this fall awesome um, you know there'll be a lot of um, continue with the educational type content but a lot more just kind of fun hunting content as well we actually have a, um, a team trip planned for the nebraska opener we've none of us have ever done that so we're pretty pretty jacked up about that yep that'll be good so we'll share that with everyone um online as well cool well and i know i get to share camp with you guys this year so i'm i'm excited for that here in michigan we're gonna do you guys are still planning on going that aren't you yeah yeah we definitely are have you made it up there to scout i know we talked about that i haven't are you ready to go do you have time we can all go together (laughs) (laughs) uh let's talk offline maybe we can make that happen (laughs) yeah because i talked about it to david my buddy that's coming up with us and we're like, we need to get together and just at least do like a day trip and just, you know, we've got like a ton of pins laid out. It's like, we just need to go do a speed tour in some of these areas and just see what we're in for. And then, you know, we might be able to like cross them off now or just say, no, this is where we're going to need to be. So I don't know. I really want to get up there for at least a day, but we'll see if that's going to happen or not. 
Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. I think just one day up there would significantly improve all of our chances at success because it's a lot of sw- it's a lot of different terrains up there. Um, yep. For those that don't, don't know, Northern Michigan, um, and we're talking about swamps here. There's plenty of swamps up there, but the swamps up there are a whole different animal from what I spend most of my time on. They're not your traditional marshy cattail swamps. Yep. They're you know they're the cedar swamps that some other folks have talked about, and uh, that that definitely changes. Um, changes the game <laughs> up there and, and kind of figuring out where where uh, the deer like to spend their time so mm-hmm, definitely but looking well, forward to it it'll be fun yeah i am as well so well good deal man thank you very much for coming on doing this and giving me your time and uh can't wait to do it again for sure yeah i appreciate it Aaron. thanks for the time and uh, looking forward to uh hunting this october yeah, me too. So uh, I guess good luck out in Nebraska if I don't talk to you, you know, until you guys do that. And hopefully you come back with a big one and we can talk about it in camp. So, Yeah, yeah, I appreciate it, Aaron. Thanks again. Yep, thank you. All right, there you have it. Thank you, Kevin, for coming coming on, man. I had greatly appreciated. Great podcast, great talk. Um, he's got a wealth of knowledge, man. He knows mobile saddle gear and he knows how to hunt. Who would have thunk it? <laughs> But, Kevin, thank you very much. And uh, I want to tell everybody, you know, go check out the partners that uh, help make this, you know, podcast roll a little bit is Latitude Outdoors, Vector Custom Arrows, Exodus Trail Cameras, Exodus Outdoor Gear, and Helix Broadhead. So go check those out. Don't forget to go to iTunes, leave a five-star rating, and leave a written review. That is always greatly appreciated. And don't forget, we'll be right here next week on the Fall Podcast. I'm Will Cooper, and you're listening to HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast on the Waypoint Podcast Network. Stick around as I bring you more stories and interviews from veteran hunters and industry professionals who inspire us all to be better equipped in the woods and in life. In Wild Country, rules were not created by man. Don't miss Wild Country, Wednesdays from 7 to 11 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Primos. Speak the language. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.